Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. We are here live, and today is the day. Today is June 16, 2015. This is one of the biggest days of the year here on The Nonprofit Coach. The uh, Giving Institute uh, has, since the beginning of this show, uh, chosen to use the uh, Cap America or the, the uh, nonprofit coach radio show uh, as one of its uh, main outlets for information regarding the release today of uh, the Giving USA report. This is a seminal report on giving uh, throughout the United States, uh, and with us here today we have two experts. Uh, we have Keith Curtis, who is the chair of the Giving USA Foundation, uh, and Peter Kissinger, uh, uh, who is uh, the past chair of that same board. Because of the importance of uh, this uh, topic and the information that these two gentlemen have for us today, we are going to jump right into the show and get right on to page two. Leading us off today is Keith Curtis. As I mentioned before, he's chair of the Giving USA Foundation. He's founder and president of the Curtis Group. Uh, for more than 30 years, he has uh, been experienced in working on behalf of philanthropic organizations. Over that time, Keith has become recognized as an expert in all aspects of fundraising and nonprofit management. He is also sought after as an advisor and speaker, making up to 40 presentations a year. Uh, I don't think he sleeps. Uh, to a variety of national and state conferences. As president of the Curtis Group, founded 26 years ago, Keith and his team have developed strategies to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for their clients. Uh, but more importantly, he is here. He's been actively involved with the Giving USA Foundation, uh, where he chair, where he currently serves as chair. He's the past uh, chair of its advisory council on methodology. So a very important gentleman and an honor to welcome him here to the Nonprofit Coach. Hello, Keith Curtis. Hi, Ted. Thanks for uh, having me, and, uh, and I'm thrilled to have uh, Peter Pissinger along with us today also. We're going we're gonna to bring Peter in in just a few seconds, but because this is such a momentous uh, day um, and because you're currently chair of this important board, I'm going to ask you to start off by just a, a brief description of what is the Giving Institute, what is the Giving USA report, and then let's not hold people in suspense. What are the numbers and what happened? So take sure. it away. And, and, and as you mentioned, this is a big day. It's a big day for philanthropy, and we appreciate you um, helping to get this word out. 
Uh, let me just, I'll talk a little bit about what Giving USA Foundation is, so we'll hold everybody in suspense for just a second. Giving USA Foundation is the sort of sister organization of the Giving Institute. It was founded by Giving Institute. Um, we, we work with our nonprofit, uh, we work with lots of nonprofit organizations, uh, and we partner with our uh, research partner on this, Indiana University's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. As you mentioned, this is, you know, a, a long, long-term uh, report. This is our 60th year. And the great thing about not only celebrating our 60th year is um, we're also celebrating reaching an all-time high over those 60 years uh, in giving in this country. Over $358 billion uh, was given last year. Uh, and that um, has – so we now have a high peak. And also, the great news as part of that is we've got five straight years of, of increases in giving as we've come out of the Great Recession. So what we do know is that Americans continue to give, um, but the improved economy has allowed them to give more, and they've stepped up, and they've supported uh, many nonprofit organizations. Well, that's sounding like you've got good news to share. Yes. It's definitely good news. And I, I think as you look at it, and Peter will probably talk about this in just a minute, um, he'll talk some about where the money went, but maybe I'll just take a couple of seconds to also talk about where uh, the money came from. Uh, one of the great things that we know, some people have seen that iconic pie chart, is that uh, where, where money is coming from. Individuals can continue to still be the juggernaut of giving. Over 72% of the, the, the amount raised in this country is coming from individuals, uh, about 15% from uh, foundations, 8% from bequest, and just about 5% from corporate giving. The piece, though, to, to keep in mind is that if you really take uh, the private family foundations that are part of, of uh, foundation giving and you take the bequest, what we realize is that 87% of the dollars donated in this country are coming from individuals. So really good news. 87%, that's, uh, that's a very big percentage. Um, how, how much is the total giving uh, in the United States uh, for 2014? That's the big so news, if you look right? at the Yeah, if you look at the, the total giving, we're looking at about $358 billion. But then if you, you take in some of these other pieces that I had had talked about just individual giving alone is around $300 billion of that by the time you take in the individuals, their family foundations, and, and bequests. So uh, really exciting. And keeping in mind, um, you know, last year, you know, basically as we've looked at this, well, not last year, but pre-recession high, uh, we were at about $355 billion. And then just one other quick thing, when we started this 60 years ago, if you did what was given in the first year of this report back in 1955 and adjusted it for inflation, at that point it was $63 billion. So we've seen phenomenal growth over the last 60 years. Well, 60 years is uh, an enormous body of, of work. Um, I do want to uh, bring uh, Peter Fissinger into the conversation now. Um, uh, Peter Fissinger is a president and chief executive uh, officer. Uh, he is through 30 years plus career in institutional advancement. He has designed and implemented major capital fundraising, annual giving programs, planned giving programs, marketing, and publication efforts. He's committed and cre uh, to creating effective and successful campaigns through his work uh, as President and Chief Executive Officer at Campbell and Company. Uh, welcome uh, back here uh, to the uh, nonprofit coach, Peter, Peter Fissinger. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me today, Ted. I appreciate it. Well, Peter, you've not been at the Giving Institute for all 60 years, but you've been involved for uh, quite a long time. This is uh, a labor of love for a lot of people, but more importantly, it, it paints the picture of philanthropy in the United States, not just for one year, uh, but over, as, as was mentioned uh, uh, earlier by Keith Curtis, uh, over 60 years. What is the story of American philanthropy? Well, it's a very interesting story. You know, I like to believe that um, giving to religion was the birthplace 
of philanthropy in this country, uh, where people would go to worship at church or synagogue every week and be asked to support their their house of worship as well as other uh, basic human needs when these organizations were doing mission related work and from there over the 60 years what we've seen is all different kinds of philanthropy growing uh, to be honest religion's piece of the pie has shrunk over time but mostly because other categories were growing faster than giving to religion so you know it's really a unique thing uh, in our country and uh, it, it, it's really encouraging to see the um, the strong returns in the, over the last five years and to reach the highest level ever uh, adjusted for inflation in this past year, according to the estimates. Well, and, and you mentioned that there has been a shift in what has been counted as religion. I'm just wondering if part of that story is the diversification of services that might have in the past been categorized under religion may now have shifted into social service organizations and others. Um, and if uh, if this is a, a more of a of a definition than an intent. Well, I, I don't I don't think, as I understand the data, that 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 is the case, uh, Ted, because giving to religion has always encompassed a lot of human service work that that these worthwhile organizations do. We, we believe that uh, the drop as a, as a percentage of the whole, and frankly, uh, some drop in real uh, dollars over the past five years, is attributed to the fact that fewer Americans are directly affiliated with a church or synagogue than at any point in history. And, and it's really a matter of you know, if you think about how volunteers tend to give or those who are involved in organizations tend to give, the history has been that people have gone to church or synagogue every single week and been asked to give, and they're part of a community. And without editorializing on, on, on why that might be, it appears that the statistics suggest uh, that fewer people do go to church or synagogue every week, and therefore giving in that category has flattened over time. Okay, so so what is social service related to religion has been counted and continues to be counted uh, in religion. So I, I think that you know that sort of you know maybe confusion uh, brings us to let let's talk about the methodology before we sort of get into you know peeling back the onion in terms of where the money is going and and where those internal stories are. But how do you and how have you? Uh, and this is for both of you, uh, created this seminal, most important report about philanthropy in the United States. How does all that data come together and then get into this report? Keith, you want to take Peter? that? Or? No, go ahead, Peter. I'll let you start off. Well, first of all, we've in, in, in recent years, we have, uh, as an institute, engaged with the Indiana University Lilly School Family School of Philanthropy, which is in a leading academic center focused on philanthropy uh, in this country. Uh, they use what's called an econometric model, which, use, which, which they, they have access to a wide range of economic data, and they're able to model over history how, what indicators are most influential in determining philanthropic results. So the number that we're, that we're sharing with you today, $358 billion, is actually an econometric estimate, which will be confirmed in two subsequent years as more data becomes available. This model has an accuracy uh, of well above uh, 97, 98, 99% over history, but it, it might modify or, or change a little bit in the, in the coming two years. The economic indicators that are most commonly associated, associated with giving overall are personal consumption, which increased 3.9% last year, the S&P 500, which increased 11.4% last year, personal income, which increased 4% last year, the gross domestic product, which increased 3.9% last year, and then pre-tax corporate profits, 
which increased 8.3% last year. All those indicators are positive. And this model also has significant access to IRS data. And frankly, uh, Keith and I have both served as chair of the Council on Methodology, where uh, as practitioners, we're, we're the only non academicians in the uh, on the group and it and it's quite a complicated process but we found that our practitioner and market knowledge has been very useful uh, to the academicians as they refine the research model and it's been highly successful over the uh, the 60 years that we've been doing this work and and I think Ted the the, the only piece to to add on to that uh, thanks Peter for that that great that, definition there and description, but as, as Peter talks about that uh, council methodology, you know, everything that we're doing and what we've done really over these 60 years is there's about 700 different variables, you know, this is all peer-reviewed, and it's actually a really exciting process. So while Indiana University's Lilly Family School is, is, is pulling this together, they're doing it with lots of, of input from from a lot of people to really determine you know where the money is coming from, and and then where that money is is going. And again, to touch on that accuracy piece, it's really amazing uh, just how accurate this information is, especially when you think of other you know economists on other things around our country. You know how off they can be on things that for 60 years, how how within a um, as Peter said, within 97, 98, 99 percent. Uh, we have this piece down. So, how do you how do you size up the? Uh, uh, this is growth. This is um, it, it's true. This is the the highest uh, reported um, amount of total giving um, in the history of the United States. Is that is that correct? Correct. Yes, it is. Um, but yet, the percentage of of giving uh, to uh, GNP, I believe, has not changed um, appreciably over time. Um, what do we make of that? Is there anything in the data that that helps us understand that point? Well, I would say first of all, it is. It you, I would when you say it hasn't changed appreciably. I guess I I have to admit that that's largely true. It's ranged between 1.7% and 2.1% in the 60-year history of the research. It did hit 2.1% this year for the third time in 60 years, and so it is at the high water mark. But but you make a really good point, Ted. I was at a, uh, I was at a conference in Chicago this morning, and the CEO of the Chicago Community Trust was presiding uh, over this meeting where I presented some data. And they're making a big push in the community to uh, have Chicago be the most generous community in, in the country, and that's very Chicago-centric. But he made a, he made a comment that, uh, that I think is important. is the, the real goal is to encourage people to be more generous. And I think we as professional fundraisers have an important role in that, uh, to represent the missions of the organizations we serve, to, to engage meaningfully with donors, and to behave professionally and ethically, to make sure that the investments they make have impact on the things that they care about. And I think that spurs positive publicity rather than some of the negative publicity that we sometimes hear in the media. And over time, we believe that if we were able to move the needle, say, to 25 or 3% of the GDP, that it would be the single most important statistic in all of this data. I'm sure Keith agrees with that. Yeah, yeah. and Peter, what's really interesting is, you know, when we talk about that we've been at this 2% of, of GDP, you know, right now GDP equals you know about 17 uh where where we where we are with with uh, if we just moved one tenth of 1% on gdp we would add over 17 billion dollars because gdp right now is at about 17.4 trillion dollars so as peter talked about if we got to 2.5% all of a sudden we'd be talking about 435 billion dollars uh so it it doesn't take a you know if, if we can move those small percentages, it would make a, a tremendous impact. And, and, and Peter, you know, his 
point, I think, is right on. It's really not just up to the donors to be the ones to decide, you know, that that I've got to give. We have to be out there talking to them and, and what their gift and in, in their, their charitable contribution will do and the impact that it will have. And that's very important for nonprofit organizations to, to be out there talking to their donors and just letting them know what that little bit more could do for the organization and for philanthropy in general. Well, you know, Ted, if I could yeah. say uh, that that market of donors is changing. Uh, in this data, there's $6.2 billion given by uh, those who made what we're calling mega gifts, $200 million of more or more. And of that total, $6.2 billion, 85% of it came from the tech industry, which is a relatively new industry in our economy. And those donors are very different than donors of prior generations. And so we have opportunity, but we also have to be willing to change and evolve and adapt to the situation. Let me uh, just uh, share with you, uh, as you probably are aware, uh, my organization that I serve as CEO of Cap America um, issues each year the World Giving Index, and in the most recent um, edition of the World Giving Index, the United States uh, shared the first uh, place ranking uh, with Myanmar, um, and uh, and there's different, you know, and religion plays a very big role in Myanmar doing as well as it does in the World Giving Index. Um, and the World Giving Index is, is made up of um, the propensity of helping a stranger, which the U.S. came in number one in the world, uh, volunteering time, of which uh, the U.S. came in fifth, um, and donating money, of which the U.S. came in ninth. So the United States is the only country that ranked in the top ten in all three categories of the World Giving Index. So the point that you're making is, uh, that the the total amount of uh, very exciting um, a record number uh, of, of, of amount given in the United States um, still hovering in that historic range of 1.7 uh, to 2.1 percent of uh, of GNP, and so I, I think rightfully you are you start pushing the point that um, we need to make that 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 pie larger. Because each year we report on the fact that, okay, maybe more is given and, and it gets divided up in different ways, but it's still representing the same amount of our, our total economy. Yet the United States, and this is where I'm marrying these two reports together, is um, yet the United States is the most generous um, in the world. So how do we uh, uh, get the most generous uh, economy and, and society on this planet to give more. Peter, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I pointed out the $6.2 billion given uh, as part of that mega gift total, 85% of it coming from the tech industry. And uh, for those of us who have been doing this work for a long time, and Keith and I both sit in that category, I think you do as well, Ted, uh, I, I can remember just 10 or 15 years ago people being frustrated think in talking about how these younger donors simply don't understand and don't want to give. And, I, and I've never believed that to be true. And I'm really encouraged uh, by that statistic, not, not just because of the really big gifts that a few people are making, but the, the, the enduring truth that every generation – uh, in in history has been philanthropic and, and, and to be honest with you I'm not sure we have figured out how to grow the uh, philanthropy to two and a half percent of the GDP uh, because if we had we we'd have done it by now but what I do want to encourage is uh, again the strong practices that fundraisers can uh, implement in working for their organizations and reaching out to do donors and being able to articulate what it is that their mission does, being able to report back to donors who have given about the impact of their giving, to being able to measure impact in some reasonable way. And I'm not talking about arduous reporting that small nonprofits are unable to do. I'm, t I'm really talking about building meaningful relationships and to encourage folks that what they're doing 
is making a difference. And there are other trends that I've been interested by. You know, this sort of mechanical giving that you see uh, at point of purchase in in uh, around the country. When 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 I when I first experienced that, I was a little discouraged by it. But then I began to see that it's really a great way for broad-based giving that doesn't take away from other giving that people do, and it it raises awareness. And you just see a lot of people, individuals, organizations raising awareness about philanthropy. And I really think that we all have a role in trying to both make sure that philanthropy is perceived positively, that the right regulations are in place so that it can be perceived positively, and that we continue to behave responsibly and ethically to serve donors well. And and, and I believe that that's going to have an impact. But in fact, you know, we uh, we have not been able to move uh, to two and a half percent of, of the GDP. So I can't stand here and claim that I have the answer to uh, to that question. Yeah, and and I I think you know to build on Peter's piece, it really is about creating one an awareness. So so you know I think what we do with Giving USA and having the opportunity to share that story, for instance, with you and your audience. It gets people thinking about it. The the other is to to Peter's uh, piece is that by connecting with donors and talking to them about impact, it's amazing when we do that. The organizations that do that with their donors, all of a sudden their donors start to talk about philanthropy as and their giving as fun because they realize they're they're really making a difference and. And so I think to some degree what we do have to, to watch is not always think that that uh, giving is a transaction, that it is something – it's very relationship-focused and really developing those relationships with people and, and building it. And that's what's going to help us grow this. Granted, the economy is a very important piece in this, but in order to grow it more than the 2%, we're going to really need people kind of coming together and understanding what this, you know, sector that is about 10% of GDP, you know, give or take, uh, really means, and that they're having, you know, a world of influence. I, I sometimes talk to people and say, you know, in in most years, um, you got more people uh, giving to charities than they are than than are voting. You know, philanthropy. You know, we're raising more money. Uh, for nonprofit organizations than we are for politicians when they're running. And people are like, wow, I, I never knew that. And so sometimes people just don't realize the, the impact and the depth and breadth of, of the philanthropic sector that's out there, and we just need to make sure they know it. I'm, I'm wondering if um, this 60-year story uh, that you're telling um, is a story of Yes, we can tell by the World Giving Index, um, the U.S. Uh, is the most generous uh, society on the planet. Um, but because the evidence seems to suggest that uh, philanthropy plays a certain role and it seems to be a consistent role, and only when the economy grows do the absolute dollars grow, but the, the, the interest, act, and support of philanthropy has by and large remained consistent for the 60 years of this report. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. 63 million people volunteered at a nonprofit organization of their choice last year, and uh, I think that that's, you know, pretty considerable, given how busy and uh, complicated uh, lives have become with more and more single parent. Uh, families uh, in this in this country, and so I really do think there's a very positive spirit. And one of the things that I would encourage all organizations to do is to double down on their focus on engaging volunteers in a meaningful way. And I don't just mean volunteer fundraisers. Uh, I've got a very simple. I have a very simple story in our household where my wife started volunteering at our local food bank, and she's there as we speak. In fact, she goes 
uh, once a week on Tuesday afternoons. And as a result of that engagement, I've started to go to their events, and we've started to give more and more to that local entity. And, you know, I really encourage uh, all of those who are involved in nonprofit organizations to continue to think of ways to engage volunteers meaningfully, because I think it's an important piece to building the philanthropic total in this country. What what do you think about this this notion of, of philanthropy? I'm not going to call it a, a ceiling. Um, it just I think it's so personal that it, it's not it's not necessarily um, viewed by most people as um, sort of a, a national um, engagement. Uh, we're we're uh, reporting it that way. Um, certainly, um, 60 years of history seems to point to. These are individual, very private decisions that add up uh, to about the same every year. Yeah, I, I, I think you know what we find is that again, as that percentage of GDP, it does stay about the same. But but again, it is increasing every year, dollar wise. Sure. You know, and I think as big as GDP is, you know, one thing we have to keep in mind, you know, as I mentioned. I mean, you just move it, you know, one-tenth of one percent, and you've just added $17 billion on. So it doesn't take a lot of movement. I think, you know, Americans, as you've talked about, they're incredibly generous. You know, Peter talked about uh, the, num- the millions and millions that are volunteering. And, you know, what we also know is that about two-thirds of households are making, you know, a charitable gift. And if you really look at high-network households, that's, you know, over 95%. So I think it's really ingrained um, in in Americans, but I do think they still, and and I guess the definition, and it would be interesting to get Peter's take on this, um, I think sometimes what we have to do is talk to people about their charitable dollars as you're not just giving to a charity, you're really making that difference in your community and, and just a little bit more, you know, and that, that depends on whether you're the hundred dollar donor or you are the, um, you know, million plus donor by, by really understanding the impact that you can have and engaging people that possibly can move the needle, you know, on a smaller scale, we saw that some with, you know, something as simple as the ALS challenge. I mean, they raised a lot of money because, they started engaging people and they made it fun. I'm not suggesting that's how all of philanthropy can be, um, you know, people pouring, you know, ice buckets over their head. But, again, I think for a lot of a lot of donors, it's got to be more than just, you know, stroking that end-of-the-year check. And that goes back to that well, point Peter was making. I just, I just um, wanted to, to respond to that because I think you brought up a very important point. I mean, the NLS challenge, I think, it, you know, represents – more of uh, sort of a lightning in, in a bottle um, approach rather than, you know, a, a strategy because most organizations are not going to do that. It's very rare that Correct. we see something that is philanthropic that sweeps the nation. Um, and, and I'm just suggesting, and I, I don't want to stay on this topic because we do want to move on to some of the other data in the actual report, um, but because you folks, are, are you both of you gentlemen are really very knowledgeable in this area, I just wanted to explore this this notion that I've been thinking year after year and now that you're in your 60th year, you know, is this a report of, you know, the fact that this is where philanthropy fits in the U.S. Um, psyche uh, and that it, it is not a national endeavor. People don't give because they're, they're giving as part of a national move the needle, but they're giving in very small ways and very individual decisions, whether it's to their church or to their local food bank, um, it's all those individual decisions that they're not thinking in terms of if I, you know, if I give 500 instead of 100, I'm now contributing to moving the needle. I, I think you're right. I don't think that the average donor thinks, geez, I have to move that needle. And whether or not we should try to raise those sites for everybody across the country is probably an interesting debate would, that would take more time than we than we have today. But what I do think, Ted, is that, uh, you know, and I think that Keith and I both stress this a lot in the work that we do, that that those who work in the sector can really make a difference 
with well-intended donors. I'll give you an example. This morning at this conference that I was at, there was a wide discussion on a, a lot of topics, and somebody asked the question, you know, are we ever going to stop having these galas that become increasingly expensive and are time-consuming? And, there was, you know, it was a very interesting thing. One of the panelists said, you know, I go to a lot of these galas as part of what I do, and there are, there are a few that I really care about. One, she, uh, this woman pointed out this human rights organization that does a great job with their gala, and she said there's two things that they do. One is that every year they bring some speakers who are advocates for human rights or have benefited from the work that the organization has done. So the people who come learn something, and they get to touch and feel, you know, kind of, the, the, the work of the organization. She said the second thing is they do their program very well, very succinctly, and everybody is, uh, they were talking about HBT, horizontal by 10, so that, you know, you're organizing your program in an efficient way where donors learn something and you're not keeping them out until midnight. That might seem like a very minor thing, but if we can replicate best practices across the sector, I really do believe that donors will, will see the connection between their giving and the impact and be encouraged to give more. And that's the work that we do every day. That's great. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to just hold right there. We're going to take a very brief break, and when we come back, I really want to peel that onion back just a little bit more and have you share with us who are the big winners, what sectors, where did the money go uh, now that we know and have unveiled here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, that giving is at an all-time high, surpassing $358 million or billion dollars here in the United States and we will be right back after this break. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? And we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And just a program uh, notice, uh, please get out your calendars. We are uh, beginning to wind down uh, for the first half of this year. The final live show here of the Nonprofit Coach uh, here in June will be on June 30th, live at 12 noon Eastern with Linda Lysakowski, uh, who is the author of Asking Styles, second edition uh, by Charity Channel Press. She will then send us into our summer break, and we will then uh, come back live after the summer break uh, in September. So uh, watch uh, your Twitter and watch your email. Uh, you can, of course, register for our newsletter at tedhart.com and sign up for our Twitter account uh, where we announce everything, and that's twitter.com forward slash tedhart or just at tedhart. And we are back here live uh, on the nonprofit coach. Um, and, uh, gentlemen, if you could walk us through what's in the data, where did the money go? Okay, Peter, you want me to start on that? Sure. Okay, uh, so we track uh, the nine different categories of, of sectors, and, and so when you look at that 358 
$1.38 billion that was given. Uh, as we talked earlier, the big piece of it ends up going to religion. Uh, and then after that, and that's about 32%, education gets um, gets about uh, 15%, human services about 12 and and then we can talk a little bit more about some of them as, as we go through. Eight of those nine recipient sectors that we we track were all up. And six of them have reached all-time highs. So the only one that was down this past year was international giving. Uh, but but other than that, the other eight were up. And, again, six of those had, had reached all-time highs. Uh, just to build on that a little bit, the uh, you, you said, I think, Ted, you used the word, who were the winners. Uh, the The sectors that saw the greatest growth as a percentage – over the last two years combined, our education over a two-year period, 13.2% increase. Health, 11.8%. Uh, uh, what we call public society benefit, which is the United Ways and the Jewish Federations of the world, as well as the Fidelity Donor Advised Funds at 12%. Arts, culture, and humanities, 13%. And environment, and animals at 12.4%. I think if you look at those sectors that I just outlined, to be perfectly candid, they are the sectors that uh, that tend to do the best with individual donors, excepting perhaps the public society benefit, which is a, it's a very complicated category. We can talk more about it if you want. Uh, but those other sectors uh, tend to do especially well when the stock market is strong because they have support from high net worth individuals who want to make a difference in that sector and sometimes wait until their their asset bases are at a uh, you know a very high valuation and then make really big gifts and so uh, those are the right now the sectors that uh, that are doing uh, the best in terms of percentage increases over a two year period. You brought up donor-advised funds, and I uh, earlier today attended at the Urban Institute uh, their discussion today, which had the uh, the presidents and CEOs of all the top donor-advised funds, including my, myself at CAF America, Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, Charles Schwab, MPT, uh, uh, the uh, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, all of us there at the Urban Institute today on the discussion of donor-advised funds, how have they changed philanthropy. And one of the questions that came up that no one in the room had any uh, information on, so you can share the, uh, the answer to the question uh, here on the nonprofit coaches, how are donor-advised funds accounted for in the Giving USA report? They actually uh, show up in two different categories. If, if you look in the foundation category, one piece of the foundation category is community foundations. And community foundations across the country have been very aggressive in uh, building their donor-advised fund uh, categories and, and capacity to serve donors. The second piece is the, the for-profit entities that, that, of which Fidelity is perhaps best known, but there are many others, and that's counted in the public society benefit. And to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a problem. We'd like to create a separate category for donor-advised funds. We're working on that. When I say we, we're talking about Giving USA and having been chair of the uh, Methodology Council, I know that this is a, it's just a complicated challenge to get all of that categorical giving in, in, in one place. We're working on it. And I, and I think we have um, we've seen such a big growth uh, over the last few years on those donor-advised funds, both within the community foundations and those freestanding commercial funds, you know, like the Fidelity and the Schwab. And it's really interesting, as as you're seeing it, you know, depending on a year, uh, if you combine them, they could be counting, you know, granted not a huge percentage, but, you know, they could be accounting for somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe about 4%, you know, of all giving. And, and they're probably, as their assets continue to build, they're going to play a, a bigger role. And we're starting to see 
you know, a number of folks. It's not just, it, it's it's not the, you know, old way of the private family foundation where you just have to have big donors do this. You know, a lot of these you may be able to get in for $5,000 or $10,000 and have a fund and really be able to distribute. So we are seeing a, a lot of things happening there with those donor-advised funds. Well, the, the statistics that we're given today is that there are 43 national-sponsored uh, donor-advised funds, uh, again, like Cap America, Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, of, of a national variety. And then there are 606 community foundations and then 363 donor-advised funds that are categorized as single-issue uh, charities. So a total of 1,012 uh, organizations um, that uh, took in $17.28 billion um, in the last uh, report um, and granted during that period uh, about $10 billion, um, which is a 50% increase in money going out of donor advised funds uh, in the past seven years. So uh, definitely um, a, a big story, um, and I think a story that oftentimes charities don't understand that that money's already been donated and is is available if you have a relationship with a donor who has a donor advised fund. I think a lot of charities put sort of a big question mark over that donor, and they actually should be dancing a jig um, because if they have that kind of relationship, it, I think it's a, a a far easier sell to get a donor to make a donation to advise a gift to your charity if they have a donor advised fund than if they're looking at pulling cash out of their checking account or stocks out of their portfolio. Um, I, I just think that's a tougher decision, and that's where most charities spend their time. And, and I just wanted to ask you to, to reflect on you know, what might that do if, if charities really began instituting a very serious approach to um, having donors who have donor-advised funds advised to them. I, I was talking to somebody today, and then, Peter, I'll let you jump in. I was actually having this conversation with somebody today that, um, you know, oftentimes they were they, they would get – because a lot of these – the growth is so new that a lot of nonprofits don't know how to handle it. And that what people were doing is they would get in uh, – the nonprofit, they would get in this check, and it would come from a Fidelity or Swab or even a community foundation, wherever. And, you know, they weren't really thinking this was – the donor, they were tying it to the organization more so like the Fidelity or and, and they didn't think to cultivate them. And, you know, what we were talking about is when those donors have those donors advised funds, they have told you they have an intent to give. Exactly. That's what those funds exist And in fact, so, they've already given. They put it into an account where all they yeah. have to do is advise it. It's, it's one right. of the simplest decisions for a donor to make. And so nonprofits need to realize that when they're getting those, uh, they really need to work hard at continuing to engage that donor because there's a good chance they will give again. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that, that sometimes in our, and I'm referring to the profession of which I'm part, the, the fundraising profession, that we are uh, perhaps a little too slow to change to change our behaviors, our habits, to recognize opportunity. I was I was at a Giving USA live presentation uh, a year or two ago, and was really surprised to hear a question from the audience uh, asking me what I thought of the fact that people are given a charitable deduction for moving money from their own assets into another managed asset where they can let it sit indefinitely. And, and the, the clear implication was, did I think that was a bad thing? And my response was, here is money that's being moved into an account where it can only be used for philanthropy forever. So whether it sits for a year or two or, you know, it, in, the, in the bigger scheme of things is, is a little bit beside the point. And and the, the positive side of this is if people continue to do this and they amass money, then, then they're going to have to start thinking with their kids about where do we want to give this money. Now you're passing generational habits on to your children 
regarding philanthropy. And there's another thing about these donor-advised funds that have kind of irritated fundraisers, you know, at least the ones that sit in community foundations. If I understand correctly, a donor can't make a three- or five-year pledge in the same way that he or she can if, if, if it's sitting in their own private foundation or in their own right. asset. That, that is, they, I, I can just share with you, there is a restriction that donor-advised fund funds cannot be used to settle a pledge. And so that irritates the devil out of uh, fundraisers, you know. But in fact, what these donors can do is uh, there are ways for donors to say, I, I would like to uh, pledge that I will make available X amount of dollars uh, contingent upon being able to access and direct the funds annually. I mean, there are ways of getting around it. But, but, but the point is that sometimes people in our profession just don't recognize opportunity because it's, it's, um, it's inconvenient, you know. And, and, and I think this has been a very positive evolution. And, it, and you know, we have to evolve with the opportunity to make uh, philanthropic dollars uh, available to the organizations that we're involved with. Well, and I think the reason why that's important is that donor-advised funds have grown tremendously, and there's only one reason that donor-advised funds have grown tremendously, and that is because philanthropists, donors, like them. Now, there's nobody out right. there forcing them to put <laughs> right. money in donor-advised funds. They find them to be a very convenient way to be thoughtful and planful about their philanthropy, uh, to have all their record-keeping in one place, and to have professional advisors available uh, to assist them. So I, I think there's a story behind the story here in terms of, you know, over the 60 years, philanthropy has changed. Uh, the United Way at one time was a much bigger player in where the money went and deciding, you know, what, what got supported. Um, now the Internet plays a very important role. Donor-advised funds are playing a very important role. But at the heart of it is still the charitable organization and the charitable intent. Um, and while the tools change, I think um, particularly professionals that are running charitable organizations need to understand that, uh, from my perspective, and, and I just shared this this comment in uh, the uh, AFP uh, magazine's uh, article on donor advised funds um, uh, that they're, that I think is coming out for the summer edition. Uh, and you know, my point of view is donor advised funds are one of the best news stories for fundraisers uh, because if you've got a a donor, a prospect who has a donor advised fund, it's easier for them to make a decision to advise money they've already given for philanthropic purposes, as you said, it can only go to charity. Um, so when you have an advisor who is the gatekeeper uh, for, you know, advising that money, you, you've got something far better than trying to convince someone uh, to give in the first place. Uh, we've only got about uh, eight, nine minutes left here on the show. These always go so so fast, as you know, uh, Peter, because there's just so much to talk about. But having experts like yourself on the show really uh, gives us a lot to to consider. Looking into your numbers, I'm just wondering um, in one area that, uh, or one segment of uh, the nonprofit uh, sector that has not always been seen as sort of a high flying uh, winner. Um, and oftentimes for fundraisers has been one of the more difficult areas um, is that of arts and culture and humanities, and yet they have the highest percentage increase in this particular report. What's the story behind the story of success for the arts? Well, we are, are the, the firm uh, at which I work, Campbell & Company, funded some separate research also with the Lilly School about uh, eight or nine years ago on the arts and culture donor. And it, it, it turns out that the arts and culture donor, as compared to the average donor, tends to be uh, more, high, more highly educated, uh, more wealthy, tends to live in urban areas, and tends to give to multiple entities. And they are passionate about arts and culture, but they're also responsible Donors. So when the economy is really struggling, and, and this, the Great Recession was a great indication of this, there's anecdotal evidence that that donor uh, temporarily stops giving to arts and culture organizations or gives less and supports basic human needs. And then when the economy's strong, they're doing better in terms of their own 
financial wherewithal. Their assets are at, valued at a higher level. They jump in and make big gifts to organizations that they think are really important but may not be basic human needs. And so I'm not a, a bit surprised to see arts and culture in, uh, in the double-digit growth that we see because where we are in the economy fits exactly with where they do best. And that's not to, me, to say that they never do well otherwise, but there's clear trends here, uh, and, and it's supported by some research that we were able to do on that particular donor type. Well, certainly good news for, for that sector, which is one that, that in, in some reports has lagged behind and I think yeah, oftentimes you know, has more difficulty in down markets. Um, the philanthropy seems to be uh, more cyclical than I think we would like it to be. Um, it goes down when the economy goes down, and, and the, the tough part for those in need is that they have greater needs during that, that period. Is, is that just like we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, 2% just seems to be the norm? Um, that seems to be the case for the 60 years of this report as well, doesn't it? In, in in the sense of the uh, the cyclical nature of, of philanthropy tending to uh, to lag behind the economy, but when the economy goes down, so does philanthropy. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we've seen is, and Peter touched on some of those key economic indicators early on, and especially when you look at the S and P 500, for instance, and you see things like. Uh, you know, disposable personal income, all of those things have a huge bearing. Again, Americans are giving, but what really helps them drive that giving is is those economic indicators. And and so I think, you know, one of the things, as we saw during the Great Recession, thankfully we did, you know, the, the uh, philanthropy giving did not follow exactly the economy or we would have been down a lot more. But as the economy is recovering, Philanthropy is too. We're much healthier, and I think if you know we we see this is not from Giving USA because we're not able to really predict that future. But I think from my perspective, as someone who's dealing with this every day, that you know if we continue to see an economy that is growing, then we will probably see that that giving in this country continues to grow. You know, Ted, there's a there's an interesting story behind the fact. That uh, that the economy does uh, impact philanthropy, and that is, in our experience, and I'm sure uh, Keith would agree with this: the organizations that run very sound, comprehensive programs of philanthropy that are donor focused do better when the economy is struggling than struggling than other organizations. And there are simple reasons for that. One is that, in our experience. Most donors who give to multiple organizations and, and, and give a, a, a fairly significant amount away every year relative to their own uh, capacity tend to give, to, when they have to reduce their giving, they tend to give to fewer organizations before they give less to those organizations to which they are most attached. And so within that economic story, we see stories of organizations that, you know, uh, hopefully we've impacted by helping them behave professionally who are either able to weather those storms better and serve their missions more effectively. I was at a Giving USA presentation five years ago when we were in the heart of the recession, and one of the panelists said, we just happened to have the best year that we ever had. And, and you know, everybody was saying, how did that happen? Well, the way it happened is they've always worked on a bequest program, a planned giving program, even though it doesn't have an immediate return, and they happen to have two very large bequests. He said, if you look at our annual giving, it's down just like everybody else's. But because we've always worked on planned giving, we happen to be very fortunate this year and to have these bequests come in. And so we encourage organizations, always work on a bequest program, always work on planned giving, even though it doesn't have immediate impact. And that comes down to relationships and the fact that, as uh, was mentioned earlier, 87% of every dollar given away to philanthropy in this country comes from individuals. Uh, gentlemen, we are out of time. Uh, we are down to our last 90 seconds, so I'm uh, just uh, going to uh, very quickly uh, say goodbye and, and ask that uh, one of you 
share with my listeners how they can get more information and where they can find the entire report. That's you, Keith. Thanks, Peter. And, uh, again, thank both of you uh, and, and Ted for having Peter and I today. Uh, what they can do is, is go to givingusa.org, uh, and there is an opportunity to either purchase some of the report or you can get the free highlights there, uh, and we'll cover a lot of what we discussed today. Gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough, first of all, to the, the Giving Institute for choosing the nonprofit coach each year, Peter Fissinger, uh, Keith Curtis. Thank you. We look forward to having you on the show next year. That is our, our show for uh, today, the Big Giving USA Report. Uh, shows all-time record giving $358 billion. We will see you next time here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. You're listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.